you for being here. As we begin this morning, I just wanted to make an attempt to clarify what we talked about last week, at least one of the issues from last week. We talked about God's eternal purposes, God's plan of redemption. We talked about us being the predestined, pre-chosen, decreed children of God. Remember, all of the all of us are here because God has made a decision. Now that's a terminology thing that looks like at a particular point. But I wanted to make sure we see this because I said we've always been children or sons of God. I want to make sure we understand this. There are two ways of understanding and viewing and experiencing what is happening in our life. There is the perspective of God, what he wants, what he's doing, how he's working, if you would, all of that spiritual behind-the-scenes invisible work. And then there's our own experience. In our time-framed experience, we were saved and we became children of God on the day that we were born again. Is that clear to everyone? That's when I came to the realization that I belong to God. That's the day that I was birthed into the kingdom of God. In the same way, in a very restricted analogy, each one of us were here. Sorry, each one of us existed, if you would, in our parents before we were born. And then we were conceived and then we were birthed. So to us, our life began when we were born. But you see, that principle of life, that understanding that we were going to be here was already resonant in others, if you would. In the plan and in the heart of God, from the perspective of God's eternal plan, that plan that never changes, I am the same, I change not, Malachi 3.6, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, that never changes. God has determined within himself that we would be his family. He didn't wake up one morning and says, Julio, let's have a bunch of kids. This is the eternal purpose of God that was enacted in time as a result of the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, his life his sacrificial death and burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, the sending of the Holy Spirit. All of that had to happen before we were literally in our experience coming into the reality of what God had determined for us, whom God had who God determined that we would be forever. So, in one essence, yes, from the perspective of God, we have always been His. We have always belonged to God. From our perspective, we were born into this world as children of wrath. Do you remember where that is? Ephesians 
Ephesians 2, verse 3. We were born as children of wrath, but one day, according to the predetermined will of God, the grace of God appeared, remember? And we were saved, Charlie, right? By the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit won, wooed, and won you into the kingdom. And on that day, I came to the reality that I'm a child of God. So let's make sure the distinction. To say sons of God basically puts it within a time frame of our experience. But when did Jesus become the son of God? When he was born of Mary? Well, in one sense, yes. If you're going to talk about the emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, about the incarnation. But in another sense, how long has Jesus been the Son of God? Forever. And the Bible says we were in Christ. And how long have we been in Christ? From the Father's perspective, forever. We were in Christ when he was born. We were in Christ when he lived. We were in Christ when he went to the cross. When he went to the cross, God all of a sudden didn't collect all of us and put us into Christ right then. Woof, woof, man. We've always been. Why? Because of the predetermined will of God. Now, why have I emphasized this? Because I believe this is the Bible's emphasis. The Bible's emphasis is position in Christ. God's will, God's work. God's unveiling plan. And then we came into that reality on a particular day. When I was saved, this happened. When I asked Jesus to come into my heart, that happened. When I went to Alpha and I realized this happened. When I walked down the aisle at the church and knelt down. Whatever the experience is. That's when I, led by the Holy Spirit, moved upon by the power of the Holy Spirit, was given a new heart of flesh, the old heart of stone being taken away. Remember Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And that's when I and you did what? We responded by saying yes. We responded by faith. So we have been saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God, lest any of us should do what? Should boast. Hopefully that clarifies. Any questions about that? Because I know there were apparently several questions last week. I did not realize that there was some confusion. So we're not saying our souls literally, physically were alive in God before we were born. We don't believe that. It's not true. We became a living soul when we were conceived in our mother's womb. Amen? Do you believe that? Or do you believe we became living souls only when we were born? See, that's why it is so dastardly damning for those who believe that we can have abortions up to a certain time. This is a living soul created by the creator himself in the mother's womb at the moment of conception. That's when our life begins. Before then, we are in the purpose or the thought or the um, um, will of God, but he enacts that when we are born physically and then he enacts our spiritual regeneration when we are born for the second time or born again from heaven, remember, by the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's get back into our other. Let's get back into where we are this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, the emphasis during these weeks, and rightly so, is upon training 
Father, we train. We train for Alpha. We train for ministry. We train for evangelism. And Father, this is so right. But Father, we know that the most fundamental training of all that supports all the other is a training by the Holy Spirit in your word. So Father, continue to build into us this great, great monument, this fortification, this word of God, this relationship with the Lord Jesus. Father, so that as we leave this place, or even as we're here, we can be those who effectively, consistently, and compellingly image the Son of God or being conformed into the image of your dear Son. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these who come regularly to the study of your word. Father, I pray that you will pour out a blessing upon them, Father. Minister to them. Give them great wisdom, discernment. Father, increase their faith. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we've come to a place where we've looked at the tabernacle. Remember, we've gone through several weeks of the tabernacle structure, its layout, the furniture, uh, all about the tabernacle. Now, when I say all about it, we did not go into all the detail, but what we did in here is we just filled in the major and the basic gaps. We did the big things about the tabernacle. We've discussed that. Remember, we've talked about the garments of the high priest. Remember the particular clothing that he wears you see here on the wall up there. We talked a little bit about the consecration of the high priest. And so all of that is what? Picturing the work, the person of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Everything about that old economy, that old way of God meeting with his people through the sacrificial death of an animal within the context of the tabernacle, within the context of the high priest and the other priestly activities of the, uh, of the Levites. All of that spoke collectively. It spoke about the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And so it is extremely important that we have that background and that context within our understanding so that when we read the pages of the New Testament, we can identify that this is not something God has just begun, a new work, because there is no new work in the Old Testament. All of it is the fruition or the blossoming of that great seed of the gospel that is begun in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the gospel which is begun in Genesis chapter 3. Already in the heart of God before man was even created. Already God knowing that man would fall. Already, already being prepared for this. You see, God is already there. Already ready to go. He's not taken off guard. And so the seed of the gospel, which comes forth in a revelatory way in the fall of Adam, then the gospel is needed. God knowing, however, that the gospel would be needed before Adam fell. But there it is revealed to us as to its necessity for us. Then God begins to move forward in an announcing and in an anticipating in a typical way of showing throughout the Old Testament what the gospel is all about, what it's going to do, who is going to do it, how is it going to be uh, effected, what are the results of the gospel. All of that is in the Old Testament. 
It's in types and shadows and bits and pieces and innuendos, if you would, and, and parts of revelation and all of that out there. Pieces of a puzzle, if you would, that were scattered around. And people find a piece here, and something happens over here, a little piece there, and going over here. Oh, another piece here. And that's what you see in the Old Testament. But in the birth of the Lord Jesus, all of the pieces come together comprehensively. So now in Christ, we see the gospel for what it is as God's great plan to glorify himself in the giving of his son for his people. Amen? So we need both. Because, let's face it, we don't know and we cannot know whether Jesus is the Son of God. According to the Scriptures, without the Old Testament. So you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? What? I have given unto you that which I first, what? Received. That what? According to the Old Testament. Testament. You know, when we read that word scriptures in the New Testament, we think of the New Testament scriptures, don't we? That's how we think. But most of the time it's referencing where? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Most of the time. I didn't say all the time. So we've looked at all of that. Now this morning we come to the very central purpose for the existence and activity of the tabernacle and the high priest. And that is this, the ministry of atonement and deliverance. This morning, all of what we've done for what, 13 weeks or whatever it is, all of what we've done for all of these weeks has been to come to this place of culmination. Everything we've talked about means nothing except at this place today. Because everything if it were not for what we're going to talk about today, is just another religious system out there that means nothing. But it means everything. Why? Because of what God will accomplish in this system, if you would, in this religion, if you would, this religion of God upon the earth. So the ministry of deliverance and atonement, I wanted you to keep those two words in mind, deliverance and atonement. These two, deliverance and atonement, deliverance through atonement, deliverance plus atonement, deliverance slash atonement, <laughs> you know, however you want to put it. These two really function as one as they both Together, they both together describe the full effect of the work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. The work of Jesus is a work of deliverance through atonement. Now, we're not going to talk about the word atonement, reconciliation, and uh, uh, what was the other word? Oh, boy, how do you like that? There goes the old mind. Uh, whatever. And until we get into the next series, because we need to identify some of those words a little more clearly. But I think in a general way today, the work of atonement, the sacrificial death of Jesus. Deliverance and atonement, one work. One work. In the Passover lamb, you remember? The Passover. In the Passover, the lamb 
is more in view. We're going to see the, the ministry of deliverance and atonement in these two days. And I have two festivals. I skipped the line. The deliverance aspect of the death of Jesus is typified in the Passover. The atoning aspect of Jesus' work is typified in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So that's what is happening here. We're going to talk about these two feasts or festivals as typifying, as identifying, as shadowing what happened at the cross. The Passover as the delivering work of Christ and the atoning as the sacrificial death for the sin of man of Christ. And both of them are going to come together in the work of the cross. In the Passover, now some of you may remember the Passover. Did you see the movie, The Ten Commandments? All of us remember the Passover. In the Passover, the lamb is a central figure. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the 10th of Nisan and the 14th at twilight and all of that. Don't want to go into those details. I'm going to kind of go through them very quickly even when we do the festivals in a couple of weeks. But in a general way, the Passover is all about the lamb. It's all about the lamb that was sacrificed. Its death brought Israel's deliverance from captivity. Remember that? The emphasis of Passover is on the delivering power of the shed blood to free from Egyptian bondage. However, this deliverance would necessitate a price. It necessitated a price. Someone had to atone for their sin. And so in the Lamb, we already see intimations of atoning for sin. The Lamb that was slaughtered is slaughtered for a particular purpose. It's not just that death and the shedding of blood does anything because death and the shedding of blood absolutely does nothing at all if it were not for the atoning aspect of that blood, which we'll see in the Day of, Yom, in the day of Atonement. But first of all, Passover, the death of the Lamb for our deliverance. Therefore, Passover anticipated the Day of Atonement. You see, when the Passover lamb was first inaugurated, you remember in Exodus chapter what? What one? Which chapter? Twelve, okay. When the Passover was inaugurated, God knew that this would be a feast that would deliver his people through the shed blood of this lamb only because of the anticipating coming day of atonement. Now see, so what God does in the feast is separate the work of Christ, if you would, into two categories, so it can be perhaps more clearly understood, or for whatever reason. I don't know why he did that. So the Passover anticipated the Day of Atonement. These two festivals were more of a collage than a picture of Christ. Everybody know what a collage is? You've been in a home where you have a wall and all the pictures are put together and kind of comes together. It's more of a collage than a picture. These two coming together bring us, if you would, the fullness of the picture. What this means is that the ministry of Christ fulfills both festivals. Remember Colossians 2.17. Christ is the fulfillment, the completion. And so when Jesus, who he is and what he does, who he is, the lamb, what he does, the priest, 
when that comes together and when that happens at the cross, both of those, who he is and what he does, comes together at the cross. He fulfills both of these festivals. Number one, our deliverance from the penalty of death. Remember the Passover. We're delivered out of the house of bondage. Secondly, the atoning death, the day of atonement of Christ, paying for our sin. So let's look at some of the New Testament scriptures that, you, that uh, these two feasts reference. First of all, the reference to Passover are the obvious ones. It's pretty obvious that Passover is in view here. Jesus purposefully associated himself, identified himself with the Passover lamb and even as the Passover lamb when he entered Jerusalem during the Passover week, knowing that he would die. So Jesus makes a deliberate statement that I am associating myself with this lamb. In fact, I'm actually identifying myself to say, I myself am the lamb that is being used here. It is typifying of me. He's talking about himself. Matthew 26, 1 through 2. When Jesus had finished all of these sayings to his disciples, he said this, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He identifies himself as the lamb, the Passover coming. The lamb is going to be slaughtered. Remember, the Passover lamb is going to be slaughtered. And then he says, in the same breath, I'm going to die. I'm going to be slaughtered. It's my blood that is going to be spilled. In effect, he is saying, I am that lamb that has been, all those lambs that have been killed all those years, those goats that have been slaughtered all those years, they are speaking of one person, of me. You remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? John 1, what? 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that statement, John is referring, maybe even unbeknownst to him totally, to the Passover Lamb and also to the Day of Atonement. Remember what the Apostle Paul says when he talked about Christ. He says this, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Christ is our Passover lamb. So on the, in the Passover, what are we identifying? When we look at the Passover in the Old Testament, that lamb that is being slaughtered by each family represents the lamb of God who will die. And you remember, every family had to have a lamb. Every family had to shed the blood of the lamb. Every family had to put pour the lamb's blood into the basin, into the bottom part of the doorway. Usually it was hollowed out in some kind of way or it could have had a basin there if it wasn't. And then they would take the hyssop representing repentance and then they would dip the hyssop in the blood and they would put it on the what? The lentils and the doorposts so that the entire covering of their house was totally blood filled. It was blood at the bottom, at the top, and both sides. And that everybody in that house was covered by the blood. And then remember, they would eat the lamb. So on the day of deliverance, when Israel that Friday left Egypt, every one of them left having the lamb inside of them. 
They all left because they had ingested the lamb. We are saved because we are in Christ, and Christ is what? In us. Every one of us, having been born again, have, if you would, ingested the lamb. No hallelujahs on that, huh? No praise gods and jumping around. Do you see the picture? No one left Egypt alive unless he had the lamb in him. No one sneaked out. <laughs> I told you I'm watching you. You know, no one sneaked out. Everyone left on the basis of the lamb being a part of that person's life, and they ate this lamb by faith, you see, because they had no other guarantee except the word of Moses, which spoke the word of God to them. And isn't that a picture of us? That's what Passover does. You see, during the original Passover, each Israelite family was to sacrifice the lamb and smear his blood over the entrance of the house so that those who were under the shelter of the blood would be spared from the penalty of death. Exodus 12, 12 to 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land, the firstborn representing the family and the progeny, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Remember Jesus says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, what? I am. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Why are we here today? Because the blood of the Lamb of God has been poured over us and is a covering and a payment for our sin. And as a result, God the Father's judgment has been passed to another, averting his wrath over us so that we are now justified, remember, declared as not guilty, never innocent, declared as not guilty. Now we are able to be forgiven of our sin and be adopted into the family of God. Praise God. You see. The Passover was a picture of the death of God's lamb that allowed God to pass over his people as to the penalty of death. Why the firstborn? The Lord was, I may not get through it all today, but you know how we're doing. Why the death of the firstborn? The Lord was using Egypt and Pharaoh to picture the effect of sin over the world through his captivity of Satan, the God of this world. Now look. This world is held in captivity. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says what? That the God of this world has blinded the minds, what? Of the unbelievers. Ephesians 2.1, you who were dead in your sins and trespasses. I mean, you over and over again, the great example of Ezekiel 37, when the Lord gives Ezekiel the, the word in 36, and I'm going to save my people by the Spirit. Remember, I'm going to give them a new heart, taking out the stony heart, and I will put my Spirit within them, and they will obey my words. They will walk with me. Remember, they will be regenerated. And then in 37, he said, look, let me give you a picture of that. And he takes them to a valley filled with what? Dry bones. And the Bible says, and the bones were what? Very dry. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Now, Ezekiel's smart man. He says, you know. I don't know, Lord, but you have the answer to that, you see. And so what does the Lord say? Prophesy. 
because these bones, what, represent the whole house of Israel. Prophesy, speak the word, <sighs> the ruach of God, the breath of God, meaning the Holy Spirit, representing the, the work of the Holy Spirit who brings the word to us, right? He has just said the Spirit will do this work. <sighs> Breathe, and he started prophesying. What happens? Them bones are going to live again, remember? And the, this bone connected to the boom, boom. You remember that song. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And the bones came together, and then the sinews came, and the flesh came, and then they stood as a great army, but they stood as dead men just like this. And then what does the word say? Prophesy from the east to the west. And he says that the life and the breath of God will go into them. And then when that happened, the men came as a living army. They came alive again. Remember the breath of God from the east to the west, the moving of the God's Holy Spirit. And years later, a man came to Jesus and he says, I know you're a teacher because you, only you can do, only God's man can do this kind of work. And Jesus said in John 3, 3, what? Nicodemus, what? Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what do you mean by that? And he went through that. And Jesus said, the wind blows where it will, and no one knows where it's going. And it's the same thing of the Spirit. You see, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this? I'm talking about the illustration in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 36, Nicodemus told you what I'm going to do, and I gave an illustration of it in 37 so you would understand these things. This is why it's so important to know the Word of God, the Old Testament. And they tell me you can't trust the Bible. And these fools say that the Bible is wrong and is inconsistent. Well, certainly it's wrong and inconsistent to those who are blind. You see, those who can't see stumble all over the place because they're reading a book which is to them dead until the Holy Spirit opens their blinded eyes. So certainly it is. So don't fall for this stuff. Every time you hear someone say, yeah, but remember, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The the glory of the God, forget it. If I say it wrong, I can't go back, but you understand what it is. That they may not see the glory of God's Son, who is the image of God. That's why they're stumbling all over the place. God is not going to reveal it to natural man so that natural man can say, hey, hey, I got it. Hey, I mean, I got that. Man, man I am something. Mm. Nope, you're going to only get it as the Holy Spirit gives you revelation and opens your eyes. How many of you remember that moment? Oh! <gasps> Oh, my word. Oh, I remember. Oh, all of a sudden, everything was changed. You see, there was only one way for Satan's rule to be broken. The wages of sin. Remember the wages of sin. What? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There was only one way. Someone had to pay the wages of sin. Who inaugurated the sentence of death? Not Satan. God did. What are the wages of sin? Not only spiritual, I mean physical death, but spiritual death. What does spiritual death mean? It means just far more than just separation from God. We're not going to be with God. Well, you know, if I have a good life and I'm not with God, who cares? Who cares? If this is a life I live and this is what separation from God, I don't, I don't care. Almost said something else. I don't care. 
But when we know that separation from God equals condemnation under the wrath of God for eternity, Sharice, all of a sudden I get real interested. Uh, uh, could you say that again? Could you help me again? You see, that's what separation means. So when you talk about and I talk about separation from God, great. But let's make sure we understand what it means and say what it means. It means condemnation under the wrath of a holy God forever. There's a word for it. What does that word begins with an H and has two L's and an E in it? It means hell. It means hell. That's what it is. Separation from God is hell. Fellowship with God is heaven. There's nothing in between. There's nothing in between. And there never will be anything in between. So the, the price of the death had to be paid by the Son of God in order to break Satan's hold over God's people. Listen to what Hebrews 2.14 says. That through death, Christ might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, it is a picture of Passover. The deliverance from the bondage to Pharaoh and from Egypt and death and slavery. And he broke that when Jesus died on the cross. He said it is finished. And he broke Satan's power over us. And this is exactly what happened. John 19:30. God's people have been freed from their slavery. Death has been put to death. So what does John 19:30 say? It is finished. Friends, we need to have under our belts a certain working knowledge of the word of God in various scriptures. John 19.30 is the proclamation that everything from Genesis 3 all the way up to John 19.30 has what? Been paid for. Huge verse. Very important. So what Passover pictured, Jesus fulfilled. I'm trying to decide whether to go into the Day of Atonement in the next four minutes. Well, let me do this. Do you have any questions about this? Sometimes I don't have questions and answers and just kind of go through everything and any questions at all? I think I'll stop here today. Rather be a little early than take something and truncate it next week. And by the way, I'm not going to go into the, the real, all the details about the Day of Atonement. I think you can read them. There's a lot of detail there. Don't want to do that. Just want to make some of the basic dis, uh, discussion of it. But remember, Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement. Exodus 12 is what? The Passover. Any questions at all? So as we leave... Two ministries in the cross of Christ as one. The deliverance from the bondage of death, the rule of Satan, the rule of sin. Pharaoh and Egypt have been destroyed by the death of the Lamb as typifying the cross. Next week we'll talk about how does that happen? Why can God do that? Because he is anticipating that that death was not only a death as a lamb for the deliverance out of bondage, but it is a death that paid God's required price of justice. 
that the soul that sins shall die, which means the soul that sins shall suffer the eternal wrath of a holy and just God. That's the reason the Day of Atonement was the most holy day on the calendar of Israel. And that's the crux of the matter that happened at the cross. Our greatest need was the wrath of God. Our greatest deliverance was the death of Jesus. Amen? That's what we see in the tabernacle, the high priest, and all of it. That's why we're here today. See you next week. <clears throat>